Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Morning, fellas. So like Grant mentioned, we are in the second week of a series called Identity Crisis. Um, We're looking at the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. So this is Ephesians. So if you would, go ahead and open up to the book of Ephesians. Uh, Last week, we were in chapter 1. This week, we will be in chapter 2. So we are going to... We're going to unpack verses 1 through 10, and I've got it broken up into into sort of three three different sections. But before we get started, I'm going to share... I'm going to share, share two quick stories before we get rolling. So, first, there was a guy. He was a few days away from his college graduation. He was out with his classmates at local bars, you know, having a, having a good time. And by the end of the night, he was completely wasted. He thought about taking a taxi, but he ultimately decided that he could drive home. Next, there's a guy drinking really, really heavily with some friends. After a few hours, he walks out of a downtown bar, says something to someone, and gets blindsided. Wakes up hours later on the sidewalk, totally covered in blood. No idea how he got there. Ten stitches in his lip later that day. So this is, the, this is the first guy. And here's the second guy. You may notice that it's the same guy in both photos. You may also notice that the guy is me. So that was my booking sheet from being arrested when I was 22. And less than two years later, the other picture is what I texted my mom when I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning on the sidewalk in downtown Birmingham, Alabama. So, were these just bad choices? Was Was I in the wrong place at the wrong time? No, the, the reason, the reason behind my actions was much much deeper. So I want to I jump into our text so the Word of God can teach us what is happening beneath the surface for all of us. Ephesians 2, this is verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We all have a story. We all have pictures or memories or scars 
that speak to our sinfulness. Our sinfulness that is so bad that the Apostle Paul calls us dead. He doesn't say that we're struggling. He doesn't say we've made a few mistakes. He calls us dead. But what does that mean? In the very beginning, this is in Genesis. This is what God said to Adam. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Of course, Adam and Eve go on to do exactly what God told them not to do. They were tempted by Satan. They ate the fruit. Did they die? Well, not, not physically, not yet anyway. But something worse, something far worse happened. God sent them out of the garden. They were separated from God. When God said, you shall surely die, this separation is what he was talking about. When Paul says you were dead in your sins, this separation is what he was talking about. We have, we have inherited this separation. This is the fallen condition of humanity. Because of that very first sin against God, we all have a broken nature. Sin is a universal disease, and we are all infected. Sin separates us from God, leaving us spiritually dead. Paul wrote that we have followed the course of the world. He calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And just like in the garden, the enemy is actively working to be sure that we are as far from God as possible. And just like Adam and Eve, we have all given into temptation. We have all been disobedient. Your story may look nothing like mine, but we have all carried out the desires of our body and our mind in one way or another. And to be sure that we fully understand that this includes every single person, Paul tells us that we are by nature children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. If you have a pulse, then Paul is talking about you. No one is exempt. I mean, is the, is the Bible being too harsh? I mean, we're not, we're not that bad, are we? It is a hard truth, but it is nonetheless true. And God's Word has no interest whatsoever in sugarcoating sin. We have committed treason against the God of the universe and Paul is painting a crystal clear picture of our sinful condition. He would be doing us no favors by softening the message. Someone once said, It is not kindness to tell a patient who needs strong medicine that nothing serious is wrong with him. Can you imagine going into the emergency room with a broken leg? Like excruciating pain. You walk into the emergency room and they give you a Band-Aid. Are, are you serious? Look at a Band-Aid. This is ridiculous. It would be ridiculous only because the proposed solution completely undermines the seriousness of the condition. That's why Paul does not 
offer us a band-aid. He tells us how bad it really is. Like I said before, this goes much deeper than just our actions. What Paul means here is that our problem is not just in what we do, but it's in who we are. My biggest problem was not that I like to get drunk. My biggest problem was that I was separated from God. My broken nature revealed itself in all kinds of ways. The same is true for everybody. So how, how do we fix it? I mean, there's got to be there's got to be something we can do, right? The world will try anything and everything to fill the void that has been created by being separated from God. The problem is that most people have no idea why the void is even there. But there is a chasm between humanity and God. C.S. Lewis called human history the long terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Sex, pride, material things, vanity, alcohol, money. We want nothing more than to find identity and fulfillment, so why is nothing working? A song lyric comes to mind for me. It goes like this. It's like waiting for the ocean to save you from the waves. And this is what the world is doing. But self cannot fix the problem because self is the problem. Our best solution is a band-aid on a broken leg. We are trying to fix ourselves, but we don't need to be fixed. We need to be saved, and there is nothing we can do. So, is that, is that it? Does anybody have a Bible that stops at verse 3? Praise God, me either. <laughs> Let's pick up in verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We were dead in our sin but God. There was nothing we could do but God. These could be the two most amazing words that we could ever hear. And in a sense, the entire biblical narrative is God doing this time and time again. Noah was a drunk, but God. Rahab, from the Old Testament book of Joshua, she was a prostitute, but God. David was an adulterer, but God. Jesus was mocked, beaten, tortured, and executed, but God. The Apostle Paul, the man writing these words, he was a murderer, set out to destroy Christianity before it even started. But God. Now think about your own life. What does this look like for you? I drank, you saw the pictures, I drank with the aim of getting as drunk as possible. 
but God. I watched porn five days a week, but God. I lusted after a coworker and it, after a coworker and almost destroyed my marriage. But God. God is not unaware of our condition. He knows we are in trouble. He knows we are separated from him. He knows we are lost. He knows that there's nothing we can do. The cure for our disease does not come from within because only God can change our hearts. Only God can heal our broken nature. Only God. We read in verse 4 that he is rich in mercy. We read in verse 5 that it is by grace that we have been saved. Paul even seems to interrupt his own thought process just to mention grace. So it is important that we fully understand what these words mean. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Because of our sin, we deserve the wrath of God. But he has withheld it. He has shown us mercy. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. We deserve death, and God gave us life. We have been made alive with Jesus. Paul's words in verse 5 are almost identical to what he wrote to the church in Rome. So if you doubt for one second how much God loves you, then be reminded of what Paul wrote to the Romans. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. So does God wait for us to get cleaned up? No. Even when we were dead in our sin, completely separated from God, he sacrificed his son so that we might live. Jesus took the wrath that we deserved. We owed an, an eternal debt that we could never afford, but Jesus paid it for us. Jesus filled the void. We can be reconciled to God because of the finished work of Christ. Guys, this is the gospel, the good news. And notice, here in Ephesians 2, what Paul has done. He's given us the bad news first. Think about what we've read. Dead, sinful, corrupt nature, children of wrath. Remember, Paul's just telling it like it is. And I think you could argue that the good news of the gospel isn't that good until you know the seriousness of the bad news. Think about it like this. You're not concerned with the lifeboat if you don't know the ship is sinking. You're not concerned with the fire extinguisher if you don't know that your kitchen is on fire. You're not concerned with a savior if you don't know that you need to be saved. Paul is sounding an alarm. Before he tells us of the grace and mercy of God through a savior, he tells us of our need for the grace and mercy of God through a savior. Dr. Larry Crabb puts it this way. When we clearly identify the problem, then and only then will we come to deeply appreciate the solution. The more fully we comprehend the ugliness of sin, the more lovely the cross of Christ becomes. Paul clearly identifies the disease before he starts talking about the cure. But I want us to notice something else. Look again at verses 1 through 3. Your, your Bible translation could be, could be slightly different, but look at the, look at the verb tense. You were 
dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were by nature children of wrath. These are past tense words. And the grammar here is eternally important. Because if you are a believer, Paul is writing of your former condition. That is who you were. This is who you are. You have been saved by grace. You are not who you used to be. You were dead in sin, but now you are dead to sin. You have been born again. The old is gone. The new has come. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is your identity. If you are not a follower of Jesus, if these verses describe your current condition, then please hear me. You are not here by accident. Whatever baggage you brought with you this morning is absolutely no match for the grace of God, and His grace is a gift. You may not, you may not understand that right now, but if you, if you give Him your life, if you surrender, if you say, I want, I want you to have this, then he's going to give you understanding because God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. Moving into verse 6, we read that God has raised up those who believe and seated them with Jesus in the heavenly places. We have been made alive with Christ, raised up with Christ, and seated with Christ. When Paul spoke of death, we were separated from God, but now that we have been made alive, we're, we're right next to him. Now, we're all, we're all obviously right here. So what could Paul mean by saying that we're seated with Jesus? When Paul wrote to the Philippian church, he explained that as believers, our citizenship is in heaven. So when he writes that we are seated with Jesus, he means that our citizenship is effective immediately. There is no application there is no test. The Christian is a citizen of heaven right now. We are seated next to Jesus right now. Remember last week, uh, Mason and, and Burke and Sam, they talked about being sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit right now. Seated next to Jesus right now. We have, we have dual citizenship, living in both time and eternity. We are citizens of earth, but heaven is home. We are we are there already, but we're, but we're not there yet. And not only are we there, but he is here. That's because we have been reconciled to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's, there's unity now. There was separation and death, but now because of Jesus, there is life. So we've reached, um, we've, we've reached a point in the text where we may be wondering, Why? Why? God, God shows us overwhelming love. He gives, he, he gives us grace. He could, have, he could have left us dead in our sin. He could, have left me on the, he could have left me on the sidewalk. But he saved us. He has seated us with Jesus. Why? Moving on to verse 7, I want you to notice the phrase, so that. Your Bible translation may say, in order that. So that in the coming ages 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Pay close attention whenever you see so that in the Bible. This is a, this is a conjunction in the original Greek, and it's really, it's really no different than the way we, we would use a conjunction today. This is, the, this is the purpose or the reason for doing something. You study for a test so that you make a good grade. You go to bed early so that you wake up for man challenge. You eat healthy foods so that you lower your blood pressure. You do something for a reason. And God saves his rebellious creation for a reason. But what is it? This verse, verse 7, tells us. We were dead in our sin. We were dead in our sin. But God saved us by grace so that in the ages to come, he could put his grace on display by showing us kindness through Christ. He wants to put his grace on, dis on display because he wants his glory to be known. And he makes his glory known by showing us kindness through Jesus. The kindness of God and the glory that God exhibits in saving lost souls both come through Jesus. And God's primary purpose in salvation is that his glory is displayed through Jesus. Before salvation is about you and me, it's about the glory of God. Before it is about delivering us from the depths of sin, it is about God vindicating his name. Before salvation is about new life for anybody, it is about Jesus Christ being magnified. Later in the New Testament, Paul reminded Timothy of the same thing by telling him that God saved us and called us to a holy calling because of his own purpose and grace. Psalm 23 tells us that God restores the soul and leads us in paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. Now, it, 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 could, be easy. it could be easy to think, well, what is, what is God, some, some egomaniac? I mean, why is it all about him and his glory? But God is not like us. His ways are not our ways. If a human acted this way, then we would call them narcissistic or arrogant but God is not broken God is holy and as we unpack verse 7 we come to understand that God's glory and our salvation are two sides of the same coin if not for the glory of God we would be completely hopeless it is in our best interest for God to be glorified because if he isn't we're still dead so, yeah, his, his purposes are first and foremost about him because he's holy. He is just. He is righteous. But as we read in our final few verses, we will see that he uses us to accomplish his purposes. Verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Of all the passages in Scripture, this one may sum up Christianity better than any other. Followers of Jesus have been saved by grace through faith, and we did nothing to earn it. It is a gift from God. 
But this, uh, I mean, this runs against the grain of the Western mindset, doesn't it? I mean, when we really want something, when, when we really want something, what do we, what do we do? We work. We try harder. We do more. We earn it. Our culture is much more comfortable with grind and hustle than mercy and grace. Now, if you want to lose weight, if you want to get a promotion, I think grind and hustle is going to work just fine. But we cannot apply that principle to the salvation of our souls. We cannot work our way to God. We cannot earn His favor. And in verse 9, Paul gives us the exact reason. So that, there it is again, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. Because if we could, if we could boast about what we did, then salvation wouldn't even depend on God. It would depend on us. He wouldn't get the glory. We would. And we have to be we have to be really, really careful here because if we, take, if we take God off the throne, if we seek the glory, if we boast, then salvation is real quick. It's going to become about you and about me. And think about Genesis. I mean, Satan has been pulling the same trick since the garden. You don't, you don't need God. I'm, oh, oh, salvation? Yeah, you, you did that. You, you did that. But remember what Paul wrote. This is not your doing. You didn't do this. An old, an old theologian may have described it best when he said, the only thing that we contribute to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Salvation is not a result of works. But Paul does not tell us that works are useless. Not at, not at all. His point is that we are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. J.I. Packer once wrote, It is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. This means that good works will always accompany authentic faith. This means that there is always action to back up your words. James writes later in the New Testament that faith without works is dead. Again, these are not These are not good works to save you, but good works because you are saved. These are not good works so that God will love you. These are good works because he already does. But we must never never limit salvation to just the good works that, that we start doing. We must also never limit salvation to the bad things that we stop doing. Now, when someone is overwhelmed by the grace and love of Jesus Christ, there is going to be some change in behavior. But salvation is not just modified behavior. Salvation is a transformed heart. Salvation is not just being saved from sin, but being saved for God's glory. Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. And works are not the root of faith. Works are the fruit of faith. God has prepared good works 
for us, and he is using us to accomplish his purposes. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God is working in and through his church to proclaim his name to the world. He has saved and continues to save the broken pieces of his creation so that his glory would be known. We don't want anyone to notice us because we are Christians. We want everyone to notice God because we are Christians. As we, as we close, I need, to, I need to call out that sometimes, sometimes the most difficult thing about God's word is applying it to life. It may make sense on paper. It may make sense in our minds. But we struggle with how it impacts, how it impacts our lives. The aim, the, the aim is not for me to get up here and lay out a bunch of theology at 6 o'clock in the morning. The aim is for these truths to be applied, for these truths to be lived out. It's one thing to be a hearer of God's word, but it is another thing entirely to be a doer of God's word. So, as a follower of Jesus, how should you live how should your life be different? When my wife was a kid, she was, she was not a Christian, but she had neighbors who, who were Christians. My wife is a Christian now, and she, and she reflects on, on the impact that these neighbors had on her life. They were encouraging. They were loving. They were joyful, treating Treating her that way was a part of their identity as, as believers. They invited her to church. They showed her the love of Jesus. They were a light in her life. Are you shining the light of Jesus? Are you living your life in such a way that someone could talk about you like that? God could be calling you to take your next step of faith. He may be calling you to share the gospel across the world. God may be calling you to share the gospel across the street. Even something that may seem really ordinary is an opportunity to glorify God. Praying with your family, serving your neighbor, having, having coffee with a coworker. Maybe, maybe just walking in here this morning was huge for you. And praise God for that. To my, to my Christian brothers, maybe, maybe there is some sin that you were trying to fight on your own. Maybe you are still bound up in bitterness or anger or lust. Or maybe there is some, some part of your old identity that you try to avoid, but it always, it always catches up to you. So, God could be calling you to be vulnerable this morning with the guys at your table. Because whatever the... Whatever that sin is, whatever it is, it's going to be a whole lot easier to fight when you've got a brother praying for you, when you've got a brother walking alongside you. Here's an example of what this, of what this looks like for me. So last, last Tuesday, nine days ago, my wife and I, we were, I mean, goodness, we were just at each other all day, just arguing. It was awful. Like, there, I mean, the whole day, arguing the whole day. It was awful. We weren't communicating well. It was, it was bad. So I texted my table leader. 
We chatted about it for a minute. And do you want to know? Do you want to know what he did? Lead in humility. Lead in repentance. Lead in pursuing reconciliation. It does not matter who started it. First of all, get you some friends that point you toward Jesus like this. If you don't have a brother, if there's not a name in your brain right now that you can think of that would do this, you don't have friends, you have acquaintances. This is a brother who, this is a brother who loves me, who cares for me, a brother who has prayed for me hundreds of times. And do you know what he's doing? Do you know what he's doing by saying this? He's reminding me of my identity. He's reminding me of my calling. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who started it because I don't react out of my circumstances. I react out of my identity as a son of God. I humble myself because Jesus humbled himself. I forgive because Jesus forgave me. Maybe, maybe you're, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe there are parts of your life that weigh you down. You may not understand how, how the death of Jesus 2,000 years ago has anything to do with your life right now. But the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to carry that weight anymore. Whoever you are, whatever this looks like for you, let it be for your good and His glory. There's going to be there's going to be a few discussion questions up here. They're going to remain on the screen uh, during table time. So let me pray. You guys can get started. Holy Father, Lord, I thank you for every, for every man in this room. Lord, I lift, up, I lift up praise. I lift up worship, God, that you did not leave us dead in sin, but you graciously gave us your son so that we might walk in a brand new identity. God, as we go from here this morning, help us to live lives worthy of the calling you have given us. And help us, Lord, to boldly and authentically live out our faith and make you known. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.